0: Well, I've lived at four key different places in my life. I remember growing up for 22 years, born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know how they say hello in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? No. Hey, you guys, how you doing? Got that nasally voice. And I still, when I go back there, I fall right back into my childhood. And then I moved to the Republic of Texas. And it was there, sorry, the state of Texas, I went to Texas... And that's where I met my wife. By the way, she's a Red Raider and very excited they're in the final four. Um, it's God's team to her. And, and so it was in Texas that everyone would say, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? If you ever grew up in Texas, you know what I'm talking about. And then Tennessee. I was nine and a half years in Tennessee. And it's there, we, Cheryl and I, we had three little boys. They're Tennesseans. And, um, they would always go like, this is how they would greet. Hi, Joe, how are you? And you was a a two syllable word. And then I moved to Kansas and I've been here 17 years. And you know how they say, they go, hello, (laughs) Kansas. I love this place. It's what you see is what you get. There's not a lot of false pretense. Yet in each place that I've lived, and with the people who became and remained my friends, do you realize the single most important determination of whether or not someone's going to be a friend happen in the first seconds? It's called a first impression. And a first impression is all, I mean, experts tell us it happens, I don't know how they timed it, I just read it, okay? They said it happens within one-tenth of one second, all the way up to seven Seconds. something happens where even before a person might speak, you read something from them that causes you to make a first impression. And these are some of the issues that we look at or that we observe or we hear to help us click into a first impression, but they are very, very difficult to change and alter Experts have done research, one out of Cornell University, where it took people, just after looking at pictures of people and expressions on their face, it took them a year to change their initial viewpoint of someone. First impressions are extremely powerful, but it has to do with how we receive each other. How do we receive each other? Because most of the research on making a first impression is what you're to do to make a positive first, uh, uh, first impression. But, but what we're going to look at today is instead of doing, I want to talk to you about viewing. And here's the point we're going to make. is that how you receive others reflects how you view yourself. Do you ever realize this is the root... Of first impressions. How do you view yourself? It will change the way that you receive others. Here's what I mean. If you view yourself as a fantastic, superior, and awesome person, you will tend to receive others as people who are beneath you and inferior. If you view yourself as a righteous Christian, you will tend to view others especially those who don't act like you, as the heathen out there, right? And if you view yourself as informed, progressive, intelligent, when someone votes differently than you, when someone believes differently than you, there's the tendency to view them and receive them as ignorant or regressive or just plain stupid. And so Jesus is really going to deal with that issue. And remember last week when we were looking at this Uh, at, at the book of Matthew, Jesus is preparing his disciples to be without him on this earth, to continue what he started and to advance his kingdom to the end of the earth. But he had to tell them and prepare them. And everything kind of slows down on these final moments. Actually, 40% of the gospel narrative is over the last seven days of Jesus' life. Why? Because Scripture goes in slow motion so that we don't lose what Jesus is saying to us. And so, let's look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. He's preparing them, and he says this. As they were gathering in Galilee... Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. Why were they greatly distressed? Well, they were greatly distressed because Jesus said something they didn't want to hear. (laughs) I'm used to that. I say something almost every weekend people don't want to hear. Some people don't want to hear. Sometimes it's not what I want to hear. And, And that's what what uh, the word of god will do to us sometimes it will confront us on areas We'd rather want to just leave alone But here jesus is saying hey the son of man the one you just called the messiah This guy me I am going to be delivered into the hands uh, Of men and and they're going to kill me and that just they just stopped listening at that point point. and what stressed them out is Jesus was their messiah He was the one who's going to go to jerusalem and he was going to be the greatest in all the world and because they were in the inner group, the core group, they would go with him. He would be the president. They would be in his cabinet. Their whole lives would change for the better. And here he dashed it into pieces. Jesus, what in the world are they? Are you doing? And they stressed. It says that they were in Galilee. But it's interesting that Mark and Luke say that it had happened in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, it's at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's a literal place that you can go today and walk literally these places where Jesus walked. And it was off the grid in the Roman world. It was built around this time of the Roman Empire. And uh, it was a fishing town. And uh, Jesus based his northern uh, ministry in Galilee out of Capernaum. As I visited this place, it's a beautiful view of the Sea of Galilee, and this is at the north. You're looking south on that picture, and if you look down where the mountains kind of go into the the, the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, that's where the the Jordan River begins and flows all the way to the Dead Sea. This is an interesting place as you walk through the remains, but one of the interesting places is the synagogue that they uncovered as they did an excavation. They found more of a recent, and by recent, 300 AD, a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, and that was built out of that white stone, but underneath it they came to a foundation of a, that dark basalt stone, and they believe that's the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus taught in when he was in Capernaum. How do we know this? Well, I'm just going to put on my geek hat here and follow me, okay? So see that lower form of rock there, that foundation? If you follow those from right to left, they get smaller. That's unusual because that took a lot more time to build. And it only uh, we can see this and make this inference from it because to do that, they, would, they would, ha- it would take more time and energy, and it was more costly. Typically, they'd just make a clear, you know, clean slate and just keep those rocks the same size and those stones the same size. So what the tradition is is they would only do this if the place, if the foundation they were building on was a sacred space. And synagogue was a gathering place for Jews to go over the Torah and Jesus preached here. So it's likely that Jesus preached right on the foundation of that, of that uh, recent uh, synagogue. So Jesus is uh, teaching at this place. And it's at this place where the disciples ask him a question. Look at 18 verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What brought this one on? But, but, I mean, it seems like it comes out of, the, out of the blue. Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? What does this mean? Why did they ask this question? Well, if we can connect it back to the fact that they were greatly distressed when Jesus said, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day rise, I'm going to be killed, I'm no longer to be with you, then they were going to go, Okay, Jesus, when you're gone, who's going to take your place? I mean, out of all of us. Out of all of us, who's the greatest? Now, Jesus knew what they were doing. Jesus knew what they were doing. But it's a question that kind of gives our picture with who's the greatest. Our infatuation with the word goat. You know what I mean? Greatest of all time. We, it doesn't matter the topic or the field of interest, we all have our goats. Who's the best one? Who's done that the best? If it's basketball, and there's always a debate, right? And I won't even get into LeBron, you know, Jordan. We won't even, okay, I just did, but I'm sorry. We, We can get into that and we quickly move into that. But it's not always us going around with our top 10 list. It's not always us knowing who's ranked first, second, and third, and where are we? Where do we rank? It's primarily brought on by a crisis, right? And here in the ministry of Jesus, the crisis that was, Jesus is going to leave. So you're working in a company, and all of a sudden they say, hey, the president is stepping away. What's the first question? Who will take her place, right? We ask that question. It's curious. It's confusion. It's competition, and we always want to know where we stack up. So let's not be too harsh on the disciples. This is something we ask in our current world, in our current circumstances, when anything changes. Because there's a desire to one up. There's the desire to step up. There's the, one, the desire to climb the ladder to success. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to chart for us a path to greatness. And it's brought on by who's the greatest who's the greatest? Jesus is going to lean in to that question, and he's going to, he's going to really confront us with our path to greatness and his path to greatness. Now, our path to greatness usually wants to always upgrade and always be, uh, have room to be better. And there's a desire in me as a type A-driven individual. I kind of like to Firstly, I like next year to be better than this year. I like to see growth. And I've even had someone on a more humbling moment ask me if I'm addicted to success because of that, because I always have goals. And you know what? I always need my heart in check on this one. So Jesus isn't just speaking to no one. He's speaking to me. I remember where every place I lived, I've shared Milwaukee or Texas or Tennessee or Topeka. There's been a group of people who I've always heard it. The traffic here isn't good. The potholes in our roll, roads aren't great. And uh, the government is not great here. And the people here. And I've heard it wherever I've lived. And And the problem is, is you can move out of a place, but you still have you. And if you're discontent, you just take that with you. It's not there's a, a fairy that comes and goes, oh, you'll be fully content here. And, and here's my case in point. Like, I once dreamed of living in San Diego, California, okay? And then I talked to people who lived in San Diego, California. And although they compare the weather with ours all the time, they still have issues there. Because discontent is at our hearts, as greatness is in our hearts. And Jesus has to confront that. He leans in and makes the uncomfortable and awkward situations in our lives even more uncomfortable and awkward. And so this is what Jesus responds to on the question of who's the greatest. He says, and calling to him a child, Matthew said, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, by the way, as you look at that phrase, Truly I say to you, um, Jesus is not being nice. He's, he's saying, hey, listen up. Word of God here. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at that. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying to us? And by the way, before I move on, if you look at this in the book of Mark, where it's also listed, as well as Luke, it's fascinating. Mark Mark looks and says, he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and then taking that child in his arms, then he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Luke says, in Luke 9, verse 47, it says, but Jesus... When he answered this, he knew the reasoning of their hearts. In other words, he could see that. We can mask so many things. Jesus just tears us open and sees the motivation of which we operate with. And he put a child at his side, which Luke, Luke kind of brings that out. To put him at his side was the place of honor. So he put him in front, he hugged him, then put it at the side and said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, why did Jesus elevate uh, a child? Why did he do this? Well, we need to understand who, who this child was. Matthew, when he shares a Greek word for this child here, the Greek word sounds like this paedon, paedon. And paedon was neither male nor female in the Jewish world, they were an it, a pack of them were them. So, kids children we're not honored like we honor children today we we can even idolize our kids right they are they are chance to make all of our failures better we can live our lives through them and we put an incredible amount of pressure on our kids and we can think life is better with them here most of the great and important people thought life was better without them they shoved them to the side they ignored them when someone important came into the house kids get out And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes a child, hugs them, puts them next to him and says, unless every one of you guys turn, become like this, you become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is calling us to do is he's calling us to do three things. First of all, he's calling us to believe that we're the least, that we're like children. He's calling us to become the least And then he's calling us to receive the least. I just gave you all the blanks that you have in your notes. But let's try to figure out what they mean. The first one is this. Believing that I'm the least. Since children were seen as the least in society. And by the way, even slaves had a lean-in factor. Even a slave could be trusted and given responsibility and listened to and sought out. But a child was just an adult in waiting. They weren't going to become important until they grew up. Jesus said, unless you turn and become like one of these, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to believe that I'm the least? By the way, you're not going to hear this apart from God's word or a place like this. You're not going to hear the world who says, hey, believe you're the least. Matter of fact, our world's going to sing songs to you like, I believe I can fly and all those other things that are all trying to pacify this issue of greatness in your life. They're going to call you to a higher step. We don't say to our kids as they hop on the bus, Honey, have a great day, and remember, you're the least. Try that one out tomorrow. It don't, you'll have a kid, a very confused kid getting on the bus. And since the weather's good, you'll have kids who heard it, Oh, because the windows will be down. They're going, Dude, what's up with your mom or dad? yeah, we don't say this. We only say good things to our kids. And here Jesus is saying, do you believe you're the least? Well, let's talk about how Jesus sees us. Let's do that respectfully because I believe that as we look at the scriptures, very early in the story, God is creating male and female in his image, priceless, eternal Significant valuable people he creates in relationship with him. They were together. They saw the greatness of God They walked amongst the greatness of his creation and then something happened. I mean in our book two chapters in I mean <laughs> I mean you just want to know the story Two chapters were really great with God and from Genesis 2 all the way it takes It takes that long to be restored back to God Redemption is the major story, but something happened. We wanted to go our own way. We didn't think God was great. We thought we were greater. We didn't like viewing God's word as great. We thought not so great. We'd have a greater life without him than with him. So Adam and Eve walked away. And as a result, we're distant. We used to be intimate. Now we're estranged. We used to be close. Now we're far. We used to have a great. Now we have the least. And we are the least. But what does this great God do? This great God reaches down to the least. To the furthest away. To the estranged from him. And he sends the greatest gift. Jesus. This Jesus comes and lives a life. He lives a life you and I can't live. He lives a perfect life. This Jesus lives on this earth. Living a perfect life. And he dies. He dies. He's rejected. By the way. He was born to a least kind of family. Off the grid. Not in Rome. But in a part of Rome, in a very small Jewish village, Capernaum at Tops was 1,500 people at its heyday. And here's Jesus basing his ministry out of this place. These least kind of places, the greatest person who ever walked on this earth. We've got to believe that there's nothing we can do to earn this. That's why Jesus died on a cross for us. And he rose from the dead. He took the least place for us. And he reaches down, greatness reaches down to the least. And the way we begin a relationship with him is just this thing. I got to believe that I don't have enough when I stand before him. I got to believe that no performance is good enough. No bank account has enough to cover it. No act of performance or moral life is enough to satisfy the holy, righteous mind and nature and wrath of God. I've got to believe it that it's not about me. Some of you have been growing up or have acquaintance or even walked away from a religious system of morality that says if I'm good enough, I'll get in. If I can just make it so that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then God will smile on me. And scripture says even our best actions are like filthy rags before the presence of God. We've got to believe that I bring nothing. I bring nothing. But with Christ, I get everything. He's the greatness. We've got to step down from ourselves because humility then receives what Christ will give us. And the only we're going to give that is that we believe that we're the least. Humility is believing that everything I have is a gift from God. And it begins when I believe this. But Jesus doesn't just say that. He then calls us to become like children. And look at what he says here. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not just believing that I'm the least, it's becoming the least that Jesus is calling me into. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying about becoming Like a child or becoming a child, is it to be young again, to live an innocent life, to live carefree without responsibility, to say other to others like a five-year-old, like what you actually think, or to ride an emotional roller coaster like a three-year-old? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, "Look, you're my child. You're my child. Step away from your status and be good with that. Humility is becoming a child." It's becoming a child of God. And this is where we find our first calling. Like, I'm, I'm Joe. I have my first calling as a follower of Jesus. I'm a child of God. Before all the other callings in my life, I'm a child of God. And I don't grow out of that. I don't grow up to a level of maturity so that God's not still not my heavenly father and I'm not his child. We are bought into being children of God. That ought to be the greatest pursuit of our lives. To live as a child of God. If you view yourself as a child of God, guess what? You're open to receiving a whole lot more people. The disciples were into ranks. Like, Jesus, we want to be close to you. We got this rank. And when you leave, who's the greatest? Jesus says, nope, just clear the slate. Is it enough to be my child? To be my child. I love how John does this. It's so radically altered John's life, this whole principle, that he writes in 1 John, Behold, what manner, what manner of love that God the Father has on us that that we could be called children of God. And church, that is who we are. That is what we are. We're children of God. So never outgrow being a child of God. Believing I'm the least, become the least. Greatness is found in making Christ greater, bringing glory to him. It involves stepping down from ourselves, from viewing ourselves as superior or better than or righteous or more informed, intelligent or capable than others. Even, even if that's true about you, greatness is really marked on even the people who have reached the greatest heights when they step down. Case in point, one of the key players from Texas Tech last night, the, the um, interviewer goes up to him and says, tell me about uh, this point of the game and how, how did you do that? And how did you know to take that shot? And he goes, first of all, I want to give the praise and glory to Jesus Christ. It's him why I live and he, he's the one that I have my being. Now, what did you just ask me? <laughs> yeah, he had an agenda to make Jesus greater. right? Now, We can be in your face on that, and we can be fairly arrogant sometimes with that, but think about it. What if your first thought was to make Jesus greater in your response to people's questions? What if your first act was stepping down when you walk into a room of people? What if your first word was how you can make Jesus greater? Humility is becoming that child of God. How do you become a child of God? You receive the gift of Jesus. Now, many of us have been trying to perform for God's acceptance, but the gospel is all based on the view of yourself that you can't do it. We can try. I remember one of my seminary professors, just profound, said this. He said, Joe, you don't know how bad you are until you try to be good. (laughs) That's true. Just like, I don't know how selfish I am until I got married. And then we had kids. I mean, life just turns upside down when you realize and start following Jesus. And when you try to actually follow him, where you give yourself up to love people, he radically changes it. And so by faith, I just want to encourage you, if you're not in a relationship with Christ, would you do that right now if you'd like to? How do you do that? It's no hocus-pocus prayer. It's It's a statement of your heart. God, I get it. I can't be good enough. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for living dying and rising for me. I've been trying to perform. Really, this is all about trusting you. I receive what you've done for me. Now help me to follow you. However that's going to look, help me to follow you. And if that's a condition of your heart, guess what? You're a child of God. You're not a child based on your earning, you're your work. You're a child based on God's work for you, his great work through Jesus Christ. Become the least. And so Jesus continues this conversation. Look what he says in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 18. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned to the depth of the sea. Another fascinating thing. Again, I told you we were in Capernaum. Jesus said in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, guess what Capernaum made? They made made these things. Millstones. Millstones. And a millstone uh, was something that was a rock that was carved into a circle or like a wheel. And if you can see that one that's on that platform, they chisel out a square peg and they put in this long pole. And They could use that for leverage then and they'd have an animal or even a person who'd walk around in a circle And it would move that millstone to spin and they'd put grain on there and it would grind it into flour And so every city had to have them problem is is Capernaum had so many that this must have been a place. They manufactured them I think there was a sign. Welcome to Capernaum home of the millstone Probably not but but when jesus walked into this, do you get the picture? He's he's standing there, perhaps among millstones. He says, I tell you the truth, if you cause one of these children to sin, it would be better for a millstone to be put around your neck and you would be thrown. You can almost see his hand going out to the Sea of Galilee as you're in this place. See what Jesus is saying is we've got to receive the least. Receive the least, because humility is receiving the least. Jesus says that when you receive the least, you receive me. And likewise, when you reject the least, you reject Christ. You reject me. If Jesus is the greatest thing about you, it's going to change the people you receive. It's going to be the change the, the people you're going to be in relationship with. Because humility is in receiving the least. See, religion or politics or education or healthcare or corporate world or small businesses or whatever field you're in, we all have our terms, we all have our language, we all have our categories. Those people are in, those people are out. Those people are us, those people are them. And we can do that, whether it's racially or whether it's economically, whether it's our neighborhood or our cars or our positions, we can do that. But look at Jesus. It's not his way. He doesn't cast people into roles and stay away from them. You have a Jesus that is drawing near. And if Jesus is God, then you have God drawing near to people and receiving people that people don't want to hang around, that people would rather ignore, that people have to step down and take more time to go and visit and talk to. Look at Jesus. Wide and vast is the range of his love. Wide and deep are those he received. There's a, a description in the New Testament scriptures about them or those people from a Jewish perspective. People we'd rather stay away from. People who make us look bad. You know who they were? Tax collectors and sinners. Do you know who Jesus partied with? tax collectors, and sinners. There was a group of people, people who made their money selling sex, prostitutes. And if you were a Jew, even if you were on the same side of the street and you saw a prostitute coming, you were to move to the other side, even in passing, if someone was glancing, they would go, oh, that person's with a prostitute. So you would stay away. Guess who were at the feet of Jesus, weeping? Guess who Jesus asked to have a drink of water with at a well in Samaria with a prostitute, a prostitute, some with a broken past and a broken present. Now, Jesus always called each person to himself. He always called them away from what they were doing that was ungodly, but he always received them. And as Christ followers, we are to we are called to receive people the way Jesus receives us. And if you view yourself as the least, then you need to receive the least in the, in the room, the least in the neighborhood, the least in the city, the least at your work, the least in the room. Wherever we're at, we need to receive the least. And by doing so, the floor drops out, right? Who am I willing to love? If it's just like me, if it's just like me, then it's a veneer. And the the picture of love that I give is a veneer of people who look like me. But when we love like Jesus, the floor drops out. Look at how many more people the gospel is made available to. You see, we might not realize this, but this radically changed who and where the gospel went. Because after Jesus was resurrected, and he said in the book of Acts, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. How did it go from a Jewish perspective to an all-world Gentile and Jewish perspective? Because they were willing to receive people like Jesus. Did you ever realize that gospel might be limited in the people you hang around? If you're not willing to receive others, and the least, the least, how you view yourself. How you view yourself is how you receive others. So how are we doing on that, church? Because frankly, I want to own the market. I want to own the market on loving people in Topeka, And we need to provide a corner market. And that is all churches, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus in Topeka. We need to be receiving people where we're we're owning the corner market on, on love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. As we also own the corner market on what it looks like to lead a godly life with righteousness, justice, and truth. Uncompromising, but compassionate. Love and acceptance and reception of people. That is, that is the church where the gospel has no limits for who it can present the life-changing news of Jesus. So, here's my question. Who are you ignoring? Who are you ignoring? Who am I avoiding? Who am I avoiding in my life that it's easier to walk around, to dodge, to ignore, to move over, so that I can find people who are like me. Now, we can have an exercise where you write a name on your notes and you pray for that person, okay? So I, you no longer avoid them. But I just think this is ongoing. It's, it's, it's who we are, right? When we walk into a room and we look for greatness rather than the least, it's going to change the people we meet, right? Right? And it's going to change how we view ourselves. So church, we've got to be willing to step down and receive people. We've got to be willing to no longer ignore, avoid, neglect the people around us that God has placed us. By the way, let me just pan out and give you a perspective from heaven. See, God doesn't stratify people. He calls us all through Christ to be his children. So the people God puts in front of you are actually part of his plan for you to deepen in your love, to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth, to grow, to mature, to be his children who are passionately in love with him and are learning to love each other. You are the church. Let's practice this right now. Let's step down from ourselves and receive what Christ has given us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. We're going to celebrate communion right now. And what we do is we step down from ourselves and we say, I bring nothing to this. Everything that I need has been brought to us by Christ. So we take these two elements, one bread, picturing uh, the, the body of Jesus that lived for us, died for us, and rose again from the dead. When we take that, when we eat it, we're saying, I believe this. And then the cup. It's a new covenant forged by the blood of Jesus of an eternal promise of the loving kindness of god to us when we take that we drink to grace right we drink to the king until he comes for his kingdom in us which means becoming his children and receiving the least so just in the promote in, in, in the t- partaking of this we promote the message of jesus until he returns So if you're a believer in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, take this. If not, it's my prayer that soon you would believe it and you could take this because you would profess it openly in front of your church family like we're doing this. But I'm going to ask that we just hang on to these elements so that we can take them together as a family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the heart of Jesus that you uh, engaged us with today. And Lord, I just confess to you that we're going to leave this place and we're going to be confronted with so many different pictures and snapshots and videos of what is greatness. But Lord, we have Jesus. So we lift him higher in our lives and in our minds and in our hearts and with our bodies to follow him, to step down from ourselves, become the least, and receive the least. So that Jesus can become greater on earth as he is in heaven. It's in his name we pray. Amen.